Hello, I'm James Chow, and you're listening to At Large, the podcast, an initiative of China-U.S. Focus. My guest today is Professor Wang Jisi. It's a great pleasure for me to be sitting here in Hong Kong with Professor Wang Jisi, who is a professor in the School of International Studies and president of the Institute of the International and Strategic Studies at Peking University. He was, of course, the dean of the School of International Studies prior to that, and he's held a number of visiting fellow or visiting professorships at Oxford, at UC Berkeley, at the University of Michigan, at Claremont McKenna, and we're delighted that you can be with us. Here today, because you're going to lend your insight both as a thinker but also as a mover, as the China-United States relationship continues to take on new forms and new shapes. Professor Wang, let's start off with talking about what everybody's talking about. Just to timestamp this conversation, it's April 16th, and uh, two days ago there was a news that came out in the New York Times about the FBI barring. The headline said uh, some. Chinese scholars from visiting the United States over spying fears. Uh, this is part and parcel of a, a growing perception that somehow Chinese academics and the millions of Chinese students who have gone to the United States over the years since Deng Xiaoping and Jimmy Carter opened up that exchange are a threat to uh, security in America. Is that true or not? Of course not. Uh, I think the exchanges between Chinese American scholars and students um, is a, a great contribution to the bilateral relationship. And we are uh, in China as scholars and students have benefited a great deal from the exchanges, and we also contribute to the the understanding between the United States and China. So I think uh, when I heard about the story, actually I didn't. Here, to simply from the press, I got to know that quite a few months ago. Uh, so I feel very sad about all of this, and I think it is quite unfortunate uh, that the FBI is harass uh, harassing some Chinese scholars. Uh, personally, I have not been affected, but when I travel to the United States, people ask, "Do you have a visa problem?" Are you going to be uh, interviewed by the FBI, or are you going to be going to uh, is your visa going to be cancelled? This is a tough question because uh, some of my uh, fellow uh, students and, and some of my colleagues have been uh, in this situation uh, several times or at least once. So I think that could be addressed properly between the two governments. And I think that is uh, we, we uh, in, in China should work harder for a mutual understanding between the two peoples. I want to go more into the emotions of it because we're not just talking about a relationship; we're talking about millions of people, and you amongst them within that mix. As I mentioned before, you've held、uh, roles within some great American institutions, and、uh, also you spent nine months at the Woodrow Wilson School as part of your four years there as a global scholar. Obviously, it's not just about work; it's about personal friendships, intimate friendships as well. How does it make you feel when people? People,、uh, you know, talk about your community of academia and say that、uh, you're not contributing. In fact,、uh, you are a threat to them.、Um, you know, it is it. This episode、uh, has happened when the U.S.-China relationship 
uh, has been deteriorating for some time. So it should be connected to the larger uh, political climate in the bilateral relationship. But it is not simply that. I think the United States is seeing China as a threat or as a, as a, as a rival. And we scholars have actually been contributing to the bilateral relationship, and we are not threat to the United States. If you see China as a threat, it will become a threat because it hardened uh, not only your uh, the American attitude toward China, but it could backfire uh, in the Chinese scholarly community. So many people ask ourselves and ask Americans, what is going to happen? if our uh, friendship, our con uh, good feelings about the United States uh, are being hurt by these incidents. So um, I think it is uh, important, but also necessary. We are not a threat. Uh, you know, China is actually, when you see China as a threat, the, you know, the people in China is, uh, are, 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 are actually friendly to the United States. And China as a, as a nation state, I don't think it is a strategic threat to the United States. And if we are, have, we are having problems toward each other in our bilateral relations, like trade or security problems, we can sit down and talk about that. Uh, the things that I think is happening is, uh, uh, are that uh, some of us uh, are suspected uh, by the Americans as uh, serving the interests of our uh, nation's uh, intelligence community. They suspect that they are, we, are, we are working for the intelligence community, but this is very normal that scholars like us have connections with our governments. I have also connections with American government. I talk to American government officials very often. Of course, I talk to Chinese officials very often. We brief them about bilateral relations, we have we've made suggestions as to how we improve relations. We don't give them this proposal that we, sh you know, we will do harm to the United States, and of course, I don't want to do anything harmful to China. This is very interesting because, on the one hand, as you've described it as well, you could see it as uh, a movement towards a nation state as you described it. But the Committee of 100, which of course many people know is a collection of uh, some of the most uh, prestigious or influential Chinese Americans uh, in the United States, all them United States citizens, put out a statement the other day. They said that they're compelled to stand up and speak against what they call the racial profiling that's become increasingly common, they say, in the United States, where Chinese Americans are being targeted as potential traitors, spies, and agents of foreign influence. They call that statement racial profiling. So are we looking at a movement against China as a country, but in addition to that, uh, racism against an ethnic group? I think that is a phenomenon uh, quite common in the world today. Uh, in a world of turbulence, in a world of di division along ethnic, religious, and racial lines, there are people who suspect that other races are harmful or are, are, are not intelligent as themselves. Uh, that is not simply happening in the United States. It happens in Europe, in some Asian societies, everywhere in the world. So we should guard against racism and ethnic 
uh, discrimination. Uh, I think the uh, case of the committee of 100 is just a reflection of that. Uh, so it is not simply a problem that Chinese communities in the United States is faced with, but I think it's also a problem with some other Americans of different ethnic backgrounds, different origins. So I think we should not only resist the call of racism in the United States, we should do that in the world at, at large. I'm going to move on to other subjects in just a minute, but I will add one point is that it's somewhat ironic that uh, this statement, the phenomena you describe, comes at an exact point uh, where the Chinese-American community and Chinese everywhere, really, are marking the 150 years since the uh, building of the first transcontinental railroad, which helped connect people in America, which helped them be able to move. Uh, but of course, was a very sad chapter for many of the people and families involved uh, because of the element of human suffering. It wasn't just about going to America to get a job. Of course, it was about improving lives, but it was a, a very painful sacrifice for many people. Yes, I think you, you refer to this kind of history, and uh, we in China remember very uh, clearly uh, those episodes of the relationship uh, when Chinese, many Chinese came to the United States, uh, especially from, uh, from Guangdong, Fujian, and the other coastal uh, provinces, and they worked very hard. They earned very little. Um, and at the same time, we should remember that there are Americans going to China. Also, they, many of them have made many of them made contributions to China's modernization. So we should remember those people rather than to say that they are doing anything uh, bad for the United States or, or, or for China. We could talk more about the Exclusion Act, which uh, was uh, a piece of legislation that uh, banned the entry of uh, an entire ethnic group, being the Chinese, in the later part of the 19th mm -hmm. century. But let's move on, as we said. And I, by moving on, I would like to take you back to a piece that you wrote, an essay in 2005, so uh, 14 years ago. And I was reading it because I thought uh, on the foreign policy website, the foreign affairs website, that it brought up so many points that could easily be reapplied 14 years later in 2019. You wrote this uh, after 9-11 in that chapter. The United States is currently the only country with the capacity and the ambition to exercise global primacy, and it will remain so for a long time to come. Do you stand by that still today? Does the U.S. still occupy that position as the lonely superpower, so to speak? Uh, I think the relative uh, power of the United States is declining in the sense that China is catching up. Some other countries like India are also rising up very rapidly. But I still insist that China and the United States are two rising powers. But China is rising faster than the United States. But China is still, uh, uh, there's still a, lot, a long way for China to catch up with the United States economically, militarily, and in terms of soft power. I emphasize the importance of soft power because I think the soft power of the United States has been shrinking in the last few years, uh, at least. Uh, and China's soft power is rising up. 
uh, as compared to the past. But in, in terms of what we call comprehensive national power, China is lagging still very far behind uh, the United States. For instance, in uh, scientific research, in technological know-how, in management skills, uh, in education, higher education, uh, high school education, we are lagging behind. I interviewed Professor Joseph Nye at Harvard a week ago or two weeks ago, and we talked very much about collaborative, collaborative competition, about smart competition, um, and it seems very much to be a, a new line of thinking in terms of how to create an innovative solution uh, to get the China-United States relationship moving again. But in fact, you wrote about this again mm -hmm. a long time ago. You said, indeed, a cooperative partnership with Washington is of primary importance to Beijing, where economic prosperity and social stability are now top concerns. And we should remind uh, the listeners here that economic prosperity and social stability continue to be top concerns in a country where about 50 million people are still living in uh, extreme poverty. Uh, those goals haven't really shifted in that time. As you said, the relative gains in terms of uh, China as an improving progressive uh, nation has obviously gone forward. But cooperative partnership, what did you see then a decade and a half ago on this relationship in terms of working together? Working together in what sense? You're talking the about the cooperative partnership 14 yes. years ago, which people are just talking oh. about now. But no. you, you brought it up a long time ago. Uh, uh, as compared to 14 years ago, I think that, you know, 14 years ago, uh, China and the United States cooperated, engaged with each other, and also uh, working together in solving problems like climate change and the competitiveness. Com com competitiveness at the time was not as intensified as today because China is catching up uh, economically with the United States. China is getting rich, much richer than 14 years ago, and uh, the, the total GDP of China is, is about uh, two-thirds of that of the United States today. Uh, so that is a very significant change. But I think the fundamentals remain the same when we talk about, uh, for instance, educational uh, and scientific uh, uh, levels of analysis. And in that regard, also China is catching up. But we should remain very modest and, uh, and sober-minded sober as to how we, uh, w what we should do at home. So I think the competitiveness in the United States-China relationship has uh, has been more evident, more um, apparent uh, than 14 years ago. And this is an, something very new. But I agree with Joe Nye when he emphasized that China uh, and the United States are still working together and we should avoid overemphasizing China's uh, rise of, in power and Americans' uh, relative decline. Uh, and I join him in many uh, discussions, and we are about the same opinion. On the one hand, the Chinese are proud of themselves for good reasons. On the other hand, we should also realize that uh, as compared to our past, of course, we are catching up with when we compare with some advanced economies like Japan and the United States, who are, we, we should still learn from their experiences. We should caution against uh, too much uh, uh, pride on our side.
We've been doing a number of interviews, a series of interviews since the start of the year, in a way to mark, but also to honour the 40 years of the China-US relationship. And as part of that, of course, the 40 years of reform and opening up. When you think back four decades ago, I think of the archival footage of, I was a year and a half at the time, but I think of Deng Xiaoping going to the United States over at the Space Center on the White House South Lawn. Uh, there was a very warm relationship, a uh, personal relationship between him and Jimmy Carter. And they created these wonderful frameworks for the two countries. But more importantly, it's not just about two governments. It's about millions of people bringing the best of the world together and merging their talents. What's gone wrong? What goes wrong is, uh, I mean, twofold. That is not something going wrong, but something different from Deng Xiaoping years and things you talk about 14 years ago. The first thing is China is rising up. China is more powerful, more capable than 14 years ago uh, as compared to Deng Xiaoping years. The second thing is also very important. That is China's domestic changes and the United States domestic changes. The United States is 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 facing with their you know mounting pressure from from uh, their own problems like uh, you know economic inequality and the rise of populism uh, uh, and the political polarization. You talk about many things that are different today from uh, Carter years and. Uh, on, it, on the Chinese side, uh, we also experienced many, many things. Uh, we, of course, we are catching up economically, but we have daunting, uh, uh, mounting pressures at home. Uh, environmental degradation is one thing, and uh, you know, uh, aging is another, and poverty uh, re- relief is still still a daunting task. So there are many problems at home. Uh, we are making progress economically, but uh, we should also think of our own problems like uh, economic inequality. Uh, and populism is also rising in China. Nationalism is rising in China. Uh, so there are a lot of problems that are different from 14 years ago or Deng Xiaoping years. One thing happening in China is that Americans have lost their patience when they think about, when they thought about China 14 years ago or 30 years ago, they thought that China would become more like the United States, uh, mm. being, you know, getting democratic, political pluralism, more diversity of views, and rising of a middle class that would change the political system of China. And their hopes are, uh, are dashed and, and, and shattered. So uh, some of them are complaining, complaining about themselves. Some some people are complaining about China, about China going back to the old old days. Uh, you know, we are referring to Mao Zedong years, not Deng Xiaoping years. Some people say, complain that you know some of the policies are driving China back to the old days. I'm not so pessimistic. I think, you know, there will be twists in history, ups and downs in the bilateral relationship, but we should remain remain optimistic that China is changing, and China is changing ultimately in the right direction. It's always great speaking and hearing and reading what you have to say. Professor Wang Jisoo, thank you very much. Thank you.